Welcome to the Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, we heard from one of Chicago's leading authors, chatted with an expert on Illinois politics, and discussed teaching the built environment in the age of Trump. All this plus the Trump Diaries and a new Size Matters, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for October 19th, 2018. The Lumpin' Disruption spoke to author and cultural critic Eve Ewing. Dr. Ewing spoke about the epidemic of school closings on Chicago's South Side and how closed schools have hollowed out neighborhoods despite the closings making no fiscal or social sense. The Lumpin' Disruption appears whenever it wants to. Right now, as part of the Lumpen Buddies program, I am pleased to welcome into the studio uh, one of Chicago's finest people and a true buddy to oh, us. Oh, thank you. Dr. Eve Ewing. How's it going? It's going thank great. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here with us. We appreciate it so much. It's It's been a minute, literally, since you've been on Lumpen Radio. <laughs> um, we're here today. Eve, first of all, you know, I think about you uh, in the sports terms, I would call you a multi-tool player. Uh, oh, thank you know, you, you do a lot of things. Can you tell our listeners uh, what how you think of yourself as... Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think of myself as a writer, a scholar, and a cultural organizer. And uh, really what I'm trying to do is use all the possible tools at my disposal to have fun, use imagination to imagine a better world, and um, ask difficult questions about why the world is the way it is. And really because I want to just make Chicago better. Do you consider yourself an activist as well? That's a tough question. I I usually don't consider myself an activist because I think that in order to claim that term, the the bar should be a little higher than it is for some people. So sometimes I get called an activist for doing things that I would classify as just like being a decent human being. Mm -hmm. Um, I identify as an organizer, as a cultural organizer, which means that um, I am trying to think about ways to use space and culture and art to uh, change the political landscape, um, similar to, for example, a community radio station. I would call that a, a form of, of cultural organizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do engage in activism sometimes. You know, I, I go to protests and I raise money for things that I, that I think are important. But I, I really think that those are just like decent person, active citizen things. Right. Totally understand. And you now have a new book out. It's out from the University of Chicago Press. It's called Ghosts in the Schoolyard, Racism and School Closings on Chicago's South Side. This obviously is a, a hot button issue in yeah, this town as well. Um, first of all, how did you get involved in this this particular project. Yeah, so um, the 2013 school closings, which as as folks listening probably know, uh, was the largest mass public school closure in the nation's history in Chicago. Um, We had closed uh, 50 schools all at the same time in one big wave. And that happened while I was in graduate school. Um, And I had been a CPS teacher, and I was really dismayed to see that the school uh, where I had taught was closed and was being closed. And um, I was really shocked, and people started asking me, you know, why is this happening? Uh, What's the rationale behind it? And I felt that I didn't have a clear narrative to answer that, and that the narrative that was being put forth by people in power didn't make a lot of sense to me. And so I set out uh, trying to answer that question. And what I found was that, um, you know, there was this big debate in 2013 where people were like, the school closings are racist, and people in power said, no, they're not. Um, It just so happens that all these schools are the schools where black kids live. And so um, in setting out to kind of answer that question, I really ended up diving deep into a lot of the history of why our city is the way it is and the role that race and racism have played in, in creating the landscape that we know now. Yeah, and the schools, as you as you point out, uh, the schools are predominantly on in African American right. territory in the city. And the city, I, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody who listens to this radio station or lives in Chicago. This city is, of course, profoundly segregated mm-hmm. and remains profoundly segregated. What was the rationale put forth by CPS and Mayor Rahm Emanuel for closing these schools in the first place? So there were a few different um, things that they tried. First, it was, uh, well, we're going to save money. So we need to save money and, and to, to save the budget. Um, we're going to close schools. And then there were all kinds of analyses that showed that they would not, in fact, save any money by doing this. And then what they settled on was this idea of underutilization. So they said, well, um, there are schools that can fit large numbers of students, and uh, those schools are pretty empty. And so so we need to close them to help the students. Um, and the idea was that the students would be sent to academically more su- superior schools, um, even though uh, there's actually already prior to that was a body of research that said, um, for the most part, students who uh, experience school closure do not see academic gains, partially because the city is so segregated. And so schools that are struggling are clustered close together. So if your school closes and you end up going to another school that's a mile away, that school um, more often than not is 
academically um, identical to the school that was closed, nearly identical, um, and faces a lot of the same struggles. So um, what really interested me, though, was this idea of building underutilization, right? Because as an educator... Um, the idea that we should measure a school's quality by how many kids it can fit in the building and whether it's the most efficient use of space is not really an educational value. Uh, that's not an educational value that, that most people would choose for their own children. In fact, people like to send their kids to schools where they have lots of space and small class sizes, right? Um, but when it comes to poor black kids, then all of a sudden it's like, how many can we cram into this re- classroom? And so um, a lot of the book is really dealing with this underutilization idea said with heavy scare quotes um, and and really kind of taking that apart. Did, did people actually take that seriously? Because as you point out, I mean, most parents want to send their kids to small classes and small classrooms and more attention from teachers. Yeah. I mean, the sad thing is that, um, you know, Chicago, uh, the segregation of the city is very is playing out um, ferociously in the schools. So Chicago is about a third white and CPS is about nine percent white students. So by and large, um, white families have have divested from the system. And what it means is that you can have these headlines that uh, talk about, you know, this is what's best for the schools and the schools are struggling. And even well-meaning people who have never actually been in these school buildings tend to pretty much believe this narrative if it's coming from the mayor because they don't have any kind of counter evidence. Um, And uh, also because to many of them, it's easier and more palatable to listen to what the mayor or what Barbara Bird Bennett, the the superintendent, was saying um, than to listen to, you know, protesters. Something that we've been talking about a lot this year is this idea of civility versus protest, right? And that um, protesters are seen as uncivil. Um, Why don't they just go about things the right way? And uh, of course, parents of, of students impacted by school closures spend a lot of time trying to go about things the quote unquote right way, right? And when you see people protesting, it's because no one has listened to them. So I think all of those things play into the fact that unfortunately, um, the mayor was able very effectively to convince a lot of people that that this was real. Um, And of course, the people who knew better uh, were often not really given a voice to say otherwise. But if if it still doesn't make a lot of sense to me. If the, it That's wasn't because you sa- have logic, James. Well, <laughs> thoughtfulness. If, if it wasn't saving money, right, and it wasn't improving student outcomes, why were these schools being closed then? What was the point? That's that's a really great question, um, and I I really. You know, I, I'm not going to psychoanalyze the mayor. Um, oh, please do. I, I would, <laughs> you know, I would if I if I wondered why he does the things he does and why he thinks these ideas are good. Uh, you know, I would I would never sleep at night. Um, but I think that uh, there was a way that it just it was like they started a car. And they just had to keep going until they drove off a cliff, right? Off of a cliff. It was like the idea was that we're going to shut it all down and start over. And I do think that there's a kind of logic in saying, okay, if we have a lot of schools that are really struggling, I see the logic in saying we just need a clean slate. But the problem is that um, there was no sense of requiring any meaningful participation or voice or uh, incorporating pushback from the people that were actually impacted by that. And so it's almost as if, you know, uh, my husband and I share an office. And, you know, it's like if I walked in and I was like, his desk is messy. My desk is messy. This office is a mess. You know, I'm just going to just throw everything away. And and without actually asking the person who shares an office with me. And so it's not just that the schools were closed. It's not just about that decision, but this process of of really excluding people from having a meaningful seat at the table. And I think that part of the reason why I wrote this book is that I think that 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 issue is not just about schools. I think that in Chicago, we live in a profoundly undemocratic city, right? And we live in a city where whether it's transportation or public housing or mental health services or schools or health care, many of us feel excluded from the processes uh, uh, that that politically empower us to make decisions about our own lives. And I think that that is something that has the potential to change. And so I I hope that just talking about the schools as one example of that kind of catalyzes people. Although I do think that the schools are an especially egregious example um, because the mayor does unilaterally appoint um, the head of the schools as well as every member of the school board. And of course, we're the only um, district in Illinois where that is the case. We didn't, And so I think Chicagoans deserve to elect the people that, that make decisions about our schools. Um, but the mayor also unilaterally appoints the person who runs public housing, the person who runs the police department, right? And these are some of the institutions that shape the lives of the most vulnerable citizens in the city. And so how and why do, you know, how, how can we push for a voice for ourselves in these decisions? 
you know, the narrative also is that the Chicago public schools, to not put too fine a point on it, are garbage. Yeah, the and, worst in the nation. Right, we've and, famously said. Yeah, in the and, 80s. and uh, of course we're also uh, a crime-ridden hellhole. If right. you listen to certain leaders, um, right. who I won't name. That narrative, I think you also puncture as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because the the idea that the public schools are a, a death trap is simply not true. Yeah, I think that you're exactly right. I mean, there's a it's a not so subtle dog whistling. I mean, you know, William Bennett, who was the former secretary of education, famously called CPS the worst schools in the nation. Um, and that was echoed more recently by uh, our, our governor, Bruce Rauner. It's hard to even call somebody a governor when they don't really do the bare minimum to govern, but um, be that as it may. Um, our elected governor. Our elected, <laughs> our, our quote unquote governor, Bruce Rauner, um, who said that the schools were like prisons. And um, the thing is, is that that plays off of um, stereotypes for people who the last time that they saw a glimpse of a public school is when they saw Dangerous Minds with Michelle Pfeiffer, right? right. And in our whole, w- there's a whole industry that uh, kind of paints these schools as this battleground um, in entertainment, in mass media. Um, I do think it's important to recognize that our schools do face real struggles. Um, right, like last year in Chicago, uh, a number of schools failed public health inspection, for example, right? right? And uh, we found that students uh, were going to school with rodent feces, with roaches, right, with spoiled milk. Now, how did that happen? It happened because we gave a privatized janitorial contract to Aramark so that now we're paying them millions upon millions of dollars to not do the bare minimum of mopping the floor, taking out the trash. And, you know, teachers have talked about saying that they feel shame going into their school because they're, they're ashamed that the school is filthy. And they can only, you know, you can only do so much as a teacher trying to do industrial level cleaning of a building that houses hundreds of people. So that's just one example of how even the ways in which our schools are really truly struggling, like, no, I don't want to send my kid to a school where there's garbage overflowing or it smells like like spoiled milk or they're going to see a mouse or a rat. I don't want that for anybody's child. But that is not an indictment of the people there, right? That's an indictment of the power structure that has condemned them to say, this is good enough for you. It's not good enough for me or my kid, but it's good enough for you. And, and I think also the schools, a lot of the struggles that the schools face are really reflective of the struggles of our city. We have huge, massive waves of unemployment, right? We have uh, a mayor who shut down our mental health centers, right? We have people who can't get basic health care. Um, I took a student uh, last week or two weeks ago uh, to get some to, to get some glasses, right? And uh, she's somebody that my that I that I mentor, and she was always squinting. And I said, "Well, what do you do about this?" She said, "Well, I just sit in the front of the room, right? This is basic stuff. This is a brilliant kid, and she's not able to just read." the board, right? Mm-hmm. And so these are the basics. Are our kids full or their bellies full when they go to school? Right. Do their parents have jobs? Do their parents have space and time off to care for them and help them with their homework? Do they have a safe and affordable place to go to sleep at night, right? We have l- huge amounts of homelessness in CPS. So all of these things um, can make the school seem like pretty bad places because they're one of the few public institutions that are actually facing up to the realities of this when many aspects of the rest of the city would rather brush it under the rug. We could talk about this for hours, but, you know, we don't have all the time in the world. I did want to ask you one kind of final question. It strikes me that when schools close down, it it devastates not just the students, but the whole neighborhood. Yes. And I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I think that um, so when CPS closed the schools, uh, they decided that they were going to sell the buildings on the private market. And like everything else in Chicago, that became a very um, shady and bizarre process. First, they said that the aldermen were in charge and the aldermen said, "Okay, well, we don't know how we're supposed to make this decision and then it was the board right and um the sad thing is is that people in communities who have to walk by these vacant buildings every single day it's just another reminder of what the city thinks of you right uh that a place that for you might have been a place of amazing memories friendship coming of age a place where maybe not only you but your siblings your cousins your grandmother even went to school um is now a a condemned building um is is a reminder of the level of disregard with which the city uh treats you and the other thing that to me is really heartbreaking and I, i wrote about this 
as well in another article is that um, the people who have the greatest amount of desire for those buildings have the least amount of capital to to bring those desires to life. And the people who have the, the most amount of capital um, don't have any desires or dreams for the building. So a lot of those buildings uh, five years later are still unsold because surprise, surprise, uh, venture capitalists are not actually lining up to buy school buildings in neighborhoods that have faced historical amounts of disinvestment. Um, shocking that these are not considered desirable commodities on the private real estate market. Meanwhile, a kid walking by there every single day might look at his own school building and think, man, it would be really great if I could get in there and, you know, have a recording studio or a community space or take some drawing classes or if my little sister could get daycare there. Um, but those folks don't have the capital to make those things happen. So it's, it's really a shame. Yeah. Dr. Eve Ewing, her new book is Ghosts in the Schoolyard, Racism and School Closings on Chicago's South Side. It is available from the University of Chicago Press. That's More information is at uh, press.uchicago.edu. It's not uchicago.com. It's .edu. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us Thank here. We you, really appreciate Jamie, it. I appreciate you. Eve will be in the latest issue of Lumpen Magazine as one of our Lumpen Buddies. Aww. <laughs> Spontaneous Vegetation spoke to Sophia So Sinopoulos Lloyd about how personhood and spirituality are interwoven with geography. Nancy Clem discussed So's queer nature program and how to track animals in the wild. Spontaneous Vegetation airs the second Sunday of the month at 5 p.m. I'm speaking with So Sinopoulos Lloyd from Queer Nature. Um, yeah. And you usually take groups out, um, you know, into into a space so you can hold, you know, kind of hold that and, you know, take people from their screens and away from cell phone mm -hmm. access and to, to really um, start looking at the complexities and, and listening to the complexities. Well, one thing I have, this is just like a quick little one, and then I'll probably go into like a longer story but I have and this is kind of I guess a good segue to what we were just talking about actually because I think that there's so much un really unfortunate discourse like especially coming from the right or like you know that's often leveled against you know queer folks or you know queer often queer like folks who are like kind of leftist or liberal um and you know there's this archetype of like oh you're you're like overly sensitive you know or like the mm. people calling folks snowflakes or whatever and I just feel like that's because of what we were just talking about that um, sensitivity is such a, a deep gift and it it reminds me a lot of um, of like lichen or like cryptobiotic soil like these beings that that are actually made up of several different species and that are sort of these little collectives Cryptobiotic um, like, soil mean like crusts? Yeah, the crusts. <laughs> the crusts. Exactly. The, 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 like living crusts yes. in the deserts and stuff. Oh, and, like, I love these, that stuff. These beings, yeah, th and these beings are like basically these little collectives that have each other's back, and they are sensitive, and in some ways they are fragile, but they're also, you know, resilient in a way and, and, and very slow-growing, and, like, the work that they do is... Is, is very long view or something like because of how slowly they grow and um and that's such a strength and so that's 
actually something I've been thinking about a lot in terms of just this mm-hmm. work and how sensitive Tanara and I both are right now and like how much grief we're both moving through in our personal lives just that, that's really bound up in us holding these spaces and, and, and doing this work. And so that's just something I've just been thinking about that lately, Lichen and, and um, mm-hmm. the crypto as well and how that sensitivity is also kind of a form of resilience and a, a form of power too. Yeah. That's lovely. Yeah. And um, I'm trying to think of like a recent encounter I've had with a wild one. Um, I mean, I think that when you were talking, asking that question, what I really thought of was like how much um, tracking has given me as a, as a person and like wildlife tracking, like basically mm-hmm. following um, trails and footprints of, of non-human beings. And I think in some ways it's really like taught me to be a good human because it's, it's really helped me slow down my thinking and not jump to conclusions because a big part of tracking is um, kind of like gathering empirical evidence and um, using sort of different tools with, of, of logic and reasoning and, and basically like not making assumptions um, and not yeah jumping to really fantastical conclusions. And, and that slowing down of my mind when I'm following a trail or looking at tracks or sign, it seems to follow that it just helps regulate my nervous system and sort of slow that down as well. Um, and I yeah. think that I've, um, I've kind of experienced this. I'm thinking of several times that I've tracked mountain lions um, because these are instances where there's just a lot of charge because of that apex predator energy and um and one one thing that one piece of advice that i've been given by a tracker named jonah evans he's written some books and made an app um is he says like he gives some really good tools for thinking um when you're tracking and he one of the things he says is be wary of the incredible like basically don't assume the most fantastic explanation at first like maybe these these really nice beefy tracks that you're looking at that look like mountain lion tracks are actually like, you know, uh, your neighbor's Malamute or something. And, um, <laughs> and I, I appreciate that so much. Um, and one of the, one of the things that kind of boggled my mind as I've followed this advice over the years, um, because I do have a tendency, I mean, I'm very mercurial and novelty seeking and mystical by nature. So I do want to, jump to the, the fantastical, but what I've found by using this advice over and over is that being wary of the incredible actually makes discerning the incredible more possible. Um, and so if I hadn't had that advice, I don't know if I would have been able to read or see these stories of, you know, small glimpses into the life of a lion in the Colorado mountains. Um, and I'm not really sure if I have time to go into a specific story, but I, that's really what came up is like that teaching that I've gotten from from tracking and from just um, really being committed to reading stories on the landscape in a way that blends imagination and also kind of empirical observation in this kind of synergistic way that really does justice to both and is kind of a, a blend of art and science. <laughs> Just, 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 hey, I, I need them bolt cutters of mine again. Kyle, we've been over this. No bolt cutters until you stop using them uh, to cut the lock off my bicycle. How dare you, Jessica? I wouldn't have to cut the lock if you didn't keep locking it up. Besides, how could I have stolen your bicycle if you still have it? Because all six times I caught you and I took it back. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, God knows what would happen if you got away with it. You don't even know how to ride a bicycle. What thievery are you up to now? Jess, I am softened by that remark. If truth be known, I am trying to secure myself gainful employment. With bolt cutters? With, With what is behind this fence over here on Morgan. Feast your eyes on the rarest of floor finds. 
tree saws. This is an active construction site. I, I just saw these guys pop over to Saluri's for lunch. Well, it looks like it ain't that active then. Listen, just stand back and let me get to work over here. I have liberates them. Freedom is now mine. I still don't get this. It's very easy, Jess. Pulaski Savings Bank is always needing tree service, and with these tools, I can provide that service. And from that, I can parlay it into some fall-time haggerswaggle. Kyle, you're like 70 years old. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Tree cutting is arduous work. Are you sure you're physically up for this? I got some million-dollar marketing idea, so just sit back and watch. What are you jokers doing now? Oh, Kyle's trimming trees at the bank. They're giving him 60 bucks. Is he okay? He looks a little pale. Um, I think he might be having a heart attack, actually. Mm, that's just his regular clammy sweat and deathly complexion. You jagoffs can say what you want, but my treeway system is going to change the industry. <laughs> Your what? Yeah, it's my system to gin up business. All over Bridgeport are trees that need trimming. <laughs> Look at this. Look at this sign. How about a treeway? Are you serious? Absolutely. Watch this. Hey, you over there. How about a treeway? Uh, oh, no. <laughs> no, no, hey, How about no. a treeway? A treeway right hey, now. Can it, trucker? <laughs> uh, what's this about, a three-way? You got it, buddy. You're the first for my treeway system. Uh, with, with you and these guys? Uh, I, I'm not involved here. Oh. Oh, no, Jamie. You, you've made him sad. Ah, Look how sad he is. That's not very neighborly. How are we going to get this treeway system off the ground if yous don't help at all? Um, hey, this is your bright idea. I'm pretty sure it's against my religion. How is this my this idea? This is your idea because Jesus, you they'll be at it forever. Let's get back leave. to this treeway, Kyle. What exactly is this system? I'm so glad you asked. First, the thrusting. Uh, oh. Uh, as we cut across branches... Then there's the flexing. Oh. As we trim the branches, and then the final stroke oh. is to clean up the leaves. <laughs> well, I'm in. Your place or mine. <laughs> I got no trees in my place. That would be ridiculous. How about you just give us your address, and we'll be over soon. I'll be waiting. See, Jess, how easy was that to gin up business? You want to try? Um... Hey, how about a treeway? Treeway, want a treeway with us? Come on, just join in. Wow, so crazy. I have a, a different engagement a at Let's another oh, place, so Hannah. Don't try to pawn that recorder off of me. Treeway. This week on the Trump Diaries, Saudi Arabia assassinates a Washington Post columnist. Millennia Trump claims she is the most bullied person in the world, which is news to immigrants everywhere. Kanye goes off, a painting raises eyebrows, and a coven curses Kavanaugh. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 630, October 11th. Saudi Arabia apparently assassinated a prominent American Saudi journalist. According to Turkish and American intelligence, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia ordered an operation to capture and kill Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Khashoggi, who has been a prominent critic of Mohammed bin Salman, disappeared last week after he entered the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, Turkey, seeking a divorce decree so he could remarry. Turkish authorities say he was killed and dismembered by 15 Saudis in a coordinated attack. The American Senate reacted to his killing by invoking the Magnitsky Act, forcing Trump to investigate that disappearance. Trump later told reporters he would not cut off arms sales to Saudi Arabia, quote, because they will just spend that money in China or Russia, and it is $110 billion, the biggest amount ever. Trump said he would weed out individuals inside his administration who he doesn't like. Trump also talked to Jeff Sessions' chief of staff about replacing him. Sessions told colleagues he expects to be asked to resign after the midterms. Melania, in a rare interview, said her husband has people working in his administration that she doesn't trust, which makes it hard for the president to govern when, quote, you always need to watch your back. Documents show that state court judges have been granting custody of detained migrant children to American families without notifying their parents. More than 300 parents were deported to Central America without their children this summer. A number of those parents are saying they were ordered to sign a waiver they didn't understand, which removed their rights to reunify with their children. Trump said the Federal Reserve has gone crazy for raising interest rates. 
Well, financial markets suffered their worst declines in eight years this week. The Fed, which is reacting to the bond market and must end the era of so-called quantitative easing that it rolled out during the Great Recession, has raised interest rates three times this year and will do so again next month. Melania Trump gave an interview in which she claimed she was the most bullied woman in the world and then followed it up by claiming that women, quote, need to have really hard evidence before saying they're victims of sexual assault. In an interview with ABC, Melania said, quote, I do stand with women, but we need to show the evidence. You cannot just say to someone I was sexually assaulted or you did that to me because sometimes the media goes too far and the way they portray some stories, it's not correct. Melania also confirmed her infamous I don't care do you jacket was a jab aimed at the media. Worth noting is that her husband is facing civil court charges over sexual harassment. Thirteen separate women have accused him of harassment. In an unusual court filing, the Trump campaign argued it cannot be held legally responsible for WikiLeaks' publication of Democratic National Committee emails because the First Amendment protects the campaign's right to, quote, disclose information, even stolen information. Trump's staff and advisors have called WikiLeaks a cancer and a foreign agent. The Democratic National Committee and two donors filed a lawsuit against WikiLeaks. During a Pennsylvania rally, Trump claimed that there was collusion between Hillary, the Democrats, and Russia. The crowd responded by chanting, lock her up. Day 631, October 12th. Trump is considering new rules to once again separate parents and children at the U.S.-Mexico border. Trump wants to detain asylum-seeking families for up to 20 days and then give parents a chance to stay in family detention together or to allow children to be taken to a government shelter so relatives or guardians can seek custody. A sprawling tent city in Texas, where children are currently being warehoused, has grown fourfold in recent months. In a bizarre meeting, Kanye West delivered a 10-minute rant in the Oval Office, calling himself a crazy f***er akin to tasting a fine wine with complex notes for supporting Trump. West did his alleged talking points on prison reform. West said Trump, quote, is on his hero's journey right now, pitched the president on replacing Air Force One with a hydrogen-powered iPlane One that he'd like Apple to design, and continually complimented Trump. After West finished his rant, Trump said that was quite something. Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, has re-registered as a Democrat. He joins former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg, who rejoined the party after being an independent. Bloomberg is eyeing a 2020 presidential run. Cohen is eyeing five years in federal penitentiary. And Richard Pineda was sentenced to six months in prison and six months of home confinement. He pled guilty to felony identity fraud. He worked with Russian troll farms to aid the Trump campaign. In related news, an infamous troll farm was gutted by an unknown assailant with a Molotov cocktail. That farm, run by Eugen Prigoshin, a man who has been called Putin's cook, rebranded itself as a media company last year. According to Russia Today, the company operated 16 news websites that generated more than 30 million page views a month. Day 632, October 13th. While Jared Kushner's net worth has quintupled to almost $324 million, he appears to have paid no federal income taxes. Kushner used an accounting method to generate millions of dollars in paper losses driven by depreciation. That is a tax benefit available to real estate investors to discuss a portion of the cost of their buildings from their taxable income. While the method is not illegal, it has been currently strengthened by the tax rules which Trump pushed through. Wilbur Ross shifted his explanation for adding a citizenship question to the 2020 census, admitting he discussed it with former advisor Steve Bannon. Ross originally claimed that a citizenship question would allow the government to better enforce the Voting Rights Act. In fact, Ross was attempting to suppress the count. He's facing a court order to provide a deposition in a lawsuit that would remove that question from the upcoming census. House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy will introduce legislation this week to fully fund Trump's $23.4 billion border wall. It is unclear if the bill can pass as it cannot be considered before the midterms. Day 633, October 14th. Trump told 60 Minutes Leslie Stahl that it didn't matter whether or not Dr. Christine Blasey Ford was telling the truth about sexual assault claims against Brett Kavanaugh, quote, because we won. It doesn't matter. Trump further went on to claim that a speech he made that mocked Ford in her testimony was the reason Kavanaugh was confirmed. Trump also backtracked, sort of, on climate change. Stahl asked him if he still thinks climate change is a hoax. Trump replied that he does not. Quote, I think something's happening, something's changing, and it'll change back again. I don't think it's a hoax. I think there's probably a difference, but I don't know that it's man-made. Trump then went on to claim there is, quote, a very big political agenda among climate change scientists. Also in the course of the interview, Trump claimed that the USA was a day away from going to war with North Korea before he intervened. When asked if North Korea is still building missiles, Trump said, quote, well, nobody really knows. I mean, people are saying that. In fact, American intelligence has concluded the Koreans are building new missiles. And a coven of witches has gathered to lay a curse on Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. 
The event will take place at a Brooklyn, New York bookstore called Catland. The owner of the store said, quote, the whole thing is going to be really cathartic whether you believe it or not. The event got an unexpected boost from Fox News when host Tucker Carlson said on his show that the store's planned donation of ticket sales to Planned Parenthood would, quote, help them continue to fund their human sacrifice rituals. After that segment aired, the event promptly sold out. Day 634, October 15th. Under heavy political pressure at home, Trump suggested that rogue killers might have been responsible for the disappearance of Jamal Khashoggi. Quote, I spoke to King Salman, and he firmly denied any knowledge. It sounded to me like these maybe could have been rogue killers. Who knows? Trump followed up later by admitting it was still possible that the Saudis were responsible for the post-columnist disappearance. Quote, we're going to get to the bottom of it, and there will be severe punishment. If you remember, Khashoggi was reportedly killed and dismembered by Saudi agents in Istanbul. And Elizabeth Warren released a DNA test that showed strong evidence of Native American ancestry dating back six to ten generations. Warren has repeatedly been needled by Trump as Pocahontas for claiming Native American ancestry, which she actually has. When asked if Trump is now going to follow up on his offer to pay Warren $1 million for the results of her test, Trump said, who cares? I didn't say that. You better read it again. In July at an outdoor rally, Trump in fact made the offer, I will give you a million dollars paid for by Trump to your favorite charity if you take the test and it shows you're an Indian. I have a feeling she will say no. Warren tweeted at Trump saying she would like a donation to be made to the National Women's Indigenous Foundation. And the Department of Homeland Security said there's been an increasing number of attempted cyber attacks on U.S. election databases. No suspects have yet been named. Day 635, October 16th. A federal judge threw out a lawsuit filed by Stormy Daniels against Trump and ordered her to pay his legal fees. The judge ruled that a presidential tweet Daniels said was defamatory was in fact protected by the First Amendment, which guarantees freedom of speech. Now, the ruling does not affect a separate lawsuit over hush money she says was paid by Trump's lawyer. But Trump responded to the verdict by tweeting, quote, he can now go after Horseface and her third-rate lawyer. That lawyer, Michael Avenetti, said he would appeal the ruling and responded with heat of his own, saying, quote, you are a disgusting misogynist and an embarrassment to the U.S. Bring everything you have. We are going to demonstrate to the world what a complete shyster and liar you are. How many other women did you cheat on your wife with while you had a baby at home? Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is meeting with Saudi King Salman amidst mounting international backlash over missing post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. The Saudis are expected to announce Khashoggi died in, quote, in an interrogation gone wrong. Multiple reports also say the Saudis are discussing a plan to admit that Khashoggi was killed after entering the consulate, but that the operation was carried out without the knowledge of the crown prince. Few believe that to be true. Trump threatened to cancel aid to Honduras unless a group of Honduran migrants making its way toward the U.S. is stopped. Tweeting, quote, the U.S. has strongly informed the president of Honduras that the large caravan of people heading to the U.S. has not stopped and brought back to Honduras. No more money or aid will be given effective immediately. And a prominent Republican activist has died under suspicious circumstances. Republican activist Peter Smith pursued the 33,000 deleted emails from Hillary Clinton's private server, which he thought contained incriminating information. Smith obtained a batch of emails but could not verify their veracity. He also raised $100,000 to finance his research. But days after talking to the Wall Street Journal, the 81-year-old was found dead in a Minnesota hotel room, ruled suicide by helium asphyxiation. Smith's hard drives have subsequently been seized by Robert Mueller's team. Trump hung a painting given to him by Representative Daryl Issa in the Oval Office. That painting, which depicts Trump with a bevy of past Republican presidents, is called the Republican Club. It has been unfavorably compared to the dogs playing poker painting. Democratic voter turnout in this year's House primaries have doubled. Democrats have also outraged the Republicans two to one. These are the Trump Diaries. Radio Free spoke to A.D. Quigg from the Daily Line about the crowded mayoral race. A.D. discussed the candidacies of Tony Preckwinkle and Bill Daly, handicapped the race, and weighed in on whether or not the Jason Van Dyke verdict will affect the elections. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time. And we have a special guest from the Daily Line. Welcome Very to special. AD Quick. Special. Thanks, guys. Hey, I'm, welcome I'm happy back. to be here. AD, thank you so much for coming back. This is awesome. Of course. This is great. AD, for those of the uh, people that don't know, uh, writer for the Daily Line, but one of the experts on Illinois politics, particularly uh, budgetary issues in Chicago. And the budget comes out tonight, tomorrow? Chicago's budget is announced tomorrow. tomorrow. Cook County's came out recently as well. So it's we're in the middle of budget season. It's about to be hearing overload. Hearing overload. But they're both boring budgets. They're very boring budgets. Why is that? Because it's an election year. Okay. And no one wants to do anything crazy or risky in an election year because it'll show up on a mailer 
three weeks later. No risks, no increases? No, it's um, from our reporting, it's a feel-good budget. It's got stuff like extra money for tree trimming and rodent abatement and uh, infrastructure for CTA spending. It's it's kind of a feel-good, get it done, get back into office, or if you're Rom, get out of office and kiss the city of Chicago voters goodbye. Let me ask you about, not to cut you off, John, no, but let please. me ask you about that because you, you brought it up. Why is Rom leaving, in your opinion? Well... He hasn't, he hasn't said it himself mm-hmm. uh, in detail. He has spoken about wanting to spend more time with his family. He's an <coughs> empty nester. He and his wife, Amy. Mm-hmm. Um, but Excuse he's also a, a political animal. I think he saw the polling and saw that um, even if he did have a good chance of making it to a runoff, which he did, it would be likely a tough runoff fight. And then you come into your third term with not much of a mandate from the city of Chicago and not able to get done the things that you might have been um, with a broad base of support. It wouldn't have been a very fun third term, and he likes winning. Yeah, but I mean, he he was by far and away the, the runner. I mean, he was the front runner by a mile. I mean, there was nobody in the race uh, until he announced that he was going to get out that had any chance of beating him. I mean, I, I, unless you unless somebody's going to tell me that Lori Lightfoot was polling above 2%, uh, I, I didn't see anybody in that race that could, that could beat him. So was it the Jason Van Dyke trial? I mean, was it uh, – what, what was going on here? I'm sure because- it was a confluence. Okay. Um, and, the, you know, the polling wasn't good for him, just based on the number of, like, there were right. 10 candidates in the race even then. Right. And then you get um, – you know, Dorothy Brown always has the ability to poll right. 6 or 7 or 10%. Gary McCarthy could have polled as much as 10. Willie Wilson always polls a good amount. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have just been a, a bruising battle. And even if he did survive, he it, it wouldn't have been a fun third term. Gotcha. And with so, you know, like you said, with, with so much money, um, the math still doesn't really uh, come into play very well. I mean, you look at having that many uh, opponents, five here, eight there, 15 for maybe two uh, opponents, and then you combine that in a runoff, and that that does become a reality, even with, you know, between twenty-seven and a half million, thirty million dollars, um, a reality that you could even lose with that. Right. And and I, I you know, it, nobody knows ex- except for what's what the mayor has actually said himself, and it's between him and his family. But the the mandate of a third term, as as Ad said, I think is is one that really makes a, a, a difference. You know, you even think about the previous mayor. Um, and the, that third term was not was not a cakewalk. You know, there was not uh, uh, the types of elections that we saw at the end, seventy two and seventy three percent. So, so, anyways, I, I think it was a, a big challenge, but probably one that that you know, Jamie, as you said, he, he could have won. But now that there are, I mean, there's still six hundred eighty five candidates, twenty two to be exact, <laughs> yeah. that have filed paperwork, and everyone's talking about you know who else might get in, right? Because there's still time. Right. There's plenty of time. Yeah. So who now, if, if we have this uh, in the same, the same things are going on. Now, Tony Preckwinkle's in the race, Bill Daly's in the race, Dorothy Brown's in the race. There's going to be more people coming into this race probably. But there's still now, as you mentioned, 22 candidates in the race. Isn't the math still now the same for somebody like a Tony Preckwinkle or Bill Absolutely. Daly? Absolutely. And, and doesn't that make it, uh, why then are people jumping into this? Why are they saying, well, I'm going to sit this one out? Because they don't have a Rahm Emanuel with millions of dollars and tons of allies to tick off now. It's an open race. Mm-hmm. Um, it's anyone's to win. And with so much time left um, and other variables, like what happens this November with the governor and the attorney general and uh, what Mike Madigan's win total is, a lot could change between now and February. So at this point, it's, I don't want to say anybody's game, but that top six or seven candidates um, have a good chance if they find the right message and start connecting with voters. There's plenty of time. Anything could happen. And anyone that is telling you that we have a clear sense of what's going to happen in February doesn't know what they're talking about. Right. Because Chicago politics, we all know, it changes on a dime. Yeah, yeah. that's always been, been curious to me. Even when polls are dramatically far apart, um, you're still we, we are still in a state that we have an incumbent governor sitting with hundreds of millions of dollars in a campaign account. Um, and to count anybody like that out would really be, I would think, unwise. Right. And we still don't know where a lot of um, Rom's larger donors will end up. A few have gone to Bill Daly. A few have gone to Gary McCarthy. I think a few will go to Paul Vallis. Um, we just got quarterlies back. I haven't gotten a chance to sort through the quarterly reports that campaigns put together that say how much they raised and what they've spent money on. But I'm excited to see 
what other where other ROM donors are kind of scattering. That'll mm-hmm. be an interesting one. Do you think the race also is going to be impacted by the fact that it's a February election? And I guess I'm asking, I'll just come out and say, it. is there going to be voter fatigue after what promises to be a fairly bruising midterms coming up fairly shortly? I don't know. I have no idea. I think it depends on what the narrative of the race ends up being. It's no longer a referendum on ROM, mm-hmm. as much as I think people will still try to make it that. So it, it really depends on what the candidates try to make this race about or what crazy stuff might happen that completely transforms it. So I'm not sure. And I, Chance the Rapper, who came out today, did his big endorsement event with Amara Nia, um, said he was going to do a big voter registration drive, mm-hmm. specifically aimed at millennials. We'll see if that works, if they actually turn out, if they register but don't vote. That'll mm-hmm. be one thing. But if they register and do vote, that can make a big difference. Is somebody like Amara uh, a viable candidate? That depends on if those millennial voters turn out, if the Black Lives Matter uh, voters turn out. Um, yet to be tested. We've never had, we've never had an environment like this. Okay. Um, Chance's endorsement is very is a very big deal, but she also needs money to go with it and um, to capitalize on today's news and move it forward. Even even Chance, I th- a lot of reporters found this notable that they asked if he was going to support her financially, and he he basically said, "I'm not sure yet." Right which is uh, he's got quite a bit of money does, to throw yeah. around. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that he didn't have an answer to that was kind of kind of caught us by surprise. So the endorsement thus far is support using uh, social media assets and so on. Mm-hmm. The, the, is it true that the people say that this is going to be a less expensive race without the mayor? I don't know. I honestly don't know. But Rom's war chest was so huge. I have no sense of how much, number one, how big unions are going to go in on this, how big business is going to go in on this, and whether, you know, the hundreds of other <laughs> aldermanic races are also going to suck some money out, and whether donors will, also, will be fatigued in the same way from the November elections. That's a good point. I mean, there's there's aldermen in almost every ward and multiple candidates lining up. You've done a ton of reporting on uh, who's filing and, and how many and this, it seems to be there's five or six uh, candidates in, in most wards. Um, the, I've heard that it could, you know, January will be kind of prime time for media buys in this race. And I've heard that a thousand points is expensive as a million dollars a week. That sounds about right. Um, I'm wondering if people will rely on TV as much. Um, given the fatigue of like watching J.B. Pritzker and Bruce Rauner and Kwame Raoul and Erica Harold back-to-back every day for the past how many months have they been up on TV with all that money? Um, or if it will be more... It's been years. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's been an eternity of TV ads. Or if people will kind of get creative on more um, more affordable voter outreach, especially if they're going for millennials. Do you spend more money on Twitter and Facebook and direct text messaging like Paul, ba- Paul Vallis has been doing? Because hmm. Facebook messaging is not cheap. It's, it's, it's much cheaper than TV. Than TV yes, much it's cheaper than TV and cheaper cheap. than, than mail. And, yeah, and, and the, the, mail. the nature of the, the race seems to be much more, for lack of a better term, hand-to-hand combat here in the city. Yes, and winning um, as much organic media coverage as you can get, um, which I'm hoping forces people to come out with ideas rather than silly attacks. This We've seen all this silly season with Pritzker's toilets. and I heard he hates toilets. He yeah. hates, just hates people, them. People hate toilets. Take them all out of every single building. Um, mm mm-hmm. I'm ho- I'm, and we've seen in the past few days um, candidates like Paul Vallis and Dorothy Brown come out with economic development ideas, um, you know, eight-point plans, big ideas, and I think they're trying to win media coverage that way. And hopefully, that's hopefully that lasts. As a reporter, I'm excited for people to actually describe how they're going to pay down the pensions, describe how they're going to pay for police reform, describe. Um, how they're going to pay for hiring all these police officers and what uh, the Chicago Teachers Union contract will look like in 2019 and what we're going to do about dropping enrollment at CPS. I would love to hear all of those ideas. Radio Free also heard new music from Elk Walking, live in Studio A. Produced by Ari Shellist, this is Walk Away.
Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpin' Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay, produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpin' theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin' Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com. Yeah.